Hello, this is Fire and Ice. I am your host, Sabo Baptiste. I would like to say hello to Hillsborough County, WMNF 88.5 FM family and beyond. This week, we will drive and dive into U.S. Today's study results called Coaches Project. This study is all about racism in the NFL that permeates throughout the ranks, especially when it comes to interviewing and hiring black head coaches. NFL was started in 1920 in Canton, Ohio. Yes, we will discuss the NFL study with some help by a subject matter expert, football coach, and studied racism in our society and in the NFL. I would like to introduce Dr. Robert Crowley. Dr. Robert Crowley, introduce yourself and provide us a framework of racism in the NFL to work from. Today, we're going to ask you to give us some insight on the new research or the new study that was released by USA Today Coaches Project. And from what I understand, you are an expert in um, looking and observing and writing contextually about the NFL over a number of years. And so... Uh, As we discuss, we're going to talk about those nine factors that highlight discrimination within the NFL uh, football um, association. So I'm going to allow you some time to um, a couple of minutes to introduce yourself and to give us a framework, a contextual framework around how this um, NFL um, study actually came about from a historical perspective. Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Dr. Robert Crowley. And uh, again, we'd like to thank Dr. Baptiste for bringing me uh, in this morning to discuss what has been a historical process in reference to the NFL, which focuses not only on the NFL, but cuts across many of the areas of people activity when it comes to African-Americans. This is not new. What is new about this is the recent transparency that the NFL has displayed in the last couple of months in reference to them recognizing that there uh, is an issue. and And I might go back, they've always recognized it, but never have um, really embarked on trying to do anything about it. And again, the transparency is evident as uh, Troy Vincent, uh, an NFL uh, personnel, has surveyed and given us a, a critical view of just how ownership uh, views African-American coaches in the quote-unquote pipeline. Yeah, so... <clears throat> With with that information you just shared, um, would you, I mean, would you agree, you know, or elaborate on the fact that this is NFL is just a a small um, a small idea in terms of how society has racism baked into its fabric, and it is 
almost impossible for an organization such as the NFL to be without racism because of the concept and the power that is structured behind racism. Please elaborate. Yes, uh, I believe the uh, the direct answer, you know, to that question and to get a bird's eye view, one must include the historical cultural dynamics of America as it pertains and relates to race relations. The, the race, the, what I'm going to call the racialization process um, that has been part of American culture is clearly manifested in the, the NFL. And uh, when we talk about racialization, that is the process by which um, certain xenophobic kinds of ideas are manifest, you know, what one looks like, um, their color, their thought process, all is a part of that. And I see the NFL personally, you know, as a person who has researched it as a microcosm of larger society. For example, over the decades, the intellectual ability of African-Americans, whether in sports or in other areas of people activity has been questioned in terms of the position of, of, of coaches or head coach. African-Americans were considered not to have the mental capacity and this idea was promulgated throughout society in general, not only the league. Uh, for instance, there were certain positions like quarterback, center, or middle linebacker that required uh, the ability to think, and African-Americans were not suitable for those positions. Now, we put that value or concept under intense scrutiny. One would have to conclude that an African-American could not coach those positions. If you didn't have the intellect to play it, you certainly couldn't have an African-American coach coaching it. And so um, the coaching pipeline, if you, if you will, um, started even then. And if we go historical, we can go back to the Greek city states in terms of the Eurocentric idea of what, um, what we were perceived as as a people. Very good. Um, so to keep everything in focus with the Coaches Project, um, released by USA Today News um, mm -hmm. in the month of September, um, I want right. to get down to with some parts, some aspects of um, so we can understand how this, how it looks like and what happens in that interview process of vetting or interviewing a black head coach. And could you tell us some of the components um, in which a head coach need to travel through the pipeline in order to qualify, in order to qualify to be considered as a head coach so that we can understand where the missteps and how they're using the tool of racism to block them out in that pipeline? Well, <clears throat> when you talk about, um, again, you know, continuing the earlier dialogue on this pipeline uh, situation, uh, we can look no further than the fact of the demographic, you know, of coaching. There was a time when it would require a, a head coach to spend maybe, maybe 30 years in the trenches to become a head coach. And you wouldn't be a head coach until you were in your 50s. 
And that was because of the information highway. And that's generally, you know, the accepted steps in terms of, of, of white coaches. But with the advent of the information highway, you now have coaches in the NFL that are 33, 34 years old. They have the, uh, the knowledge, but not necessarily the experience. So when you add that uh, to the fact that um, the exclusionary process that happened with African-American coaches, um, those time frames didn't mean anything because of the feeling of the suitableness of an African-American uh, being a head coach. Uh, we can go back uh, to the first known African-American head coach in the NFL. Um, uh, goes back uh, several, I mean, I mean, decades ago. Um, I'm sorry his name slips my name, uh, my mind right now, but um, that was so long ago. And now when we fast forward right now and take a hard look at, you know, uh, position coaches and what they bring, we are now only becoming able to be position coaches, be coordinators, which was something that was excluded uh, from us prior. Nowadays, um, uh, we have uh, several coaches who have met the merit of becoming a head coach, but have been consistently denied because of the value system of ownership. Uh, if I might just give some demographics at this point, if you would allow me to talk about why it's so. Uh, when you talk about the fact that 95% of NFL teams are owned by whites, many of which are families. There are only two teams in the NFL, the Buffalo Bills and the Jacksonville Jaguars who are owned by persons of color. Um, meaning that, uh, for instance, the, the Jags are um, owned by a gentleman by the name of Khan, whose father was a, a businessman in America, and Miss Pagula, who owns the Buffalo Bills, who is Korean-born. And so, again, you know, other folks are allowed to participate where we are not. There is no Black ownership in the NFL at all. And so, those kinds of roadblocks continue to happen. And it's just now that they are revealing. And if I just digress for one second, um, these things have been going on forever. But in the recent, uh, well, the last eight years, there's been a lot of changes in reference to things that were in the closet have been brought to the fore. Um, and, and, and we don't have to get deep into that, but there are a lot of things that are happening now in reference to leadership in America, period, that has allowed these factions to come out into the light of day. So <clears throat> what you just described um, is um, in a historical context of racialization in America, you just described a discrimination system, exclusion, mm marginalization, social exclusion, and arbitrary indignities. And that is kind of like the framework this study was built around, those areas of concern and these critical concerns that was structurally put into the head coach um, assessment when it came to interviewing. 
mm-hmm. and identifying candidates for head coach position. And I'd like to help you out a, a bit with the first coach of the NFL, which um, is Fritz Pollard. He right. was right. right. And, and Bobby Marshall, the first black coaches of the NFL, which is 1921. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are correct. They were well-seasoned. They were not in their, they looked like they were close to their 50s or if not already in their 50s when NFL allowed them to be uh, head coaches. Uh, both of them had played football for a number of years. So, right. so as you stated, um, that is not the path a lot of these young head coaches have taken. Um, so that brings me to um, getting into the overt racism. There were nine factors, um, reasons owners did not hire an African-American or, African-American or black head coach. And mm-hmm. so I want to just um, ask you when I go through this list to elaborate on um, some some tidbit bits or some kind of explanation why that would be a concern and why this measure, why this measure was used against only uh, potential head black coaches who came through the pipeline. And also, I, I would also ask you, they talked about being a coordinator of um, players is one of those pathways to get it, one of those pathways to get to um, becoming a head coach. And from Tony Dungy perspective, he's quoted in this study is saying that a lot of the uh, potential head coaches, they are, they are discouraged or derailed from even taking that path. And so there is not a lot of black coaches even in that pipeline to select from. And, he, he states that that is intentional. So with that being said, I would like to give you the first element on that um, mm-hmm. list, mm-hmm. which is never call plays. That's one of the things that they will use to deny a potential head black coach of the NFL. Okay. You said a, you said a lot, uh, Dr. Baptiste, and hopefully we can... Um, unpack all of that mm-hmm. and to um, get to a clear vision. But first, I just want to say this, the number one reason that uh, African-Americans are not selected, all of those things that you mentioned are absolutely correct and true. But we need to take a very serious look at um, the fact that these uh this ownership, okay, um, is critical. Ownership is critical. And, and, and if you've noticed, there have been some people to speak about the NFL as being a sophisticated slavery system or enslavement system, um, which, is, which is correct. But we have to look at the fact that these NFL teams, the average cost of an NFL team is about $5 billion. And those teams have ownership, which is white. And those owners 
are unequivocally controlled every aspect of it, including choosing the coach. And so if we have an owner that um, that can be considered uh, one who has demonstrated discrimination, one who has shown by his selection or her selection process not to include African-Americans ties directly into ownership. Ownership is the primary reason, the, the makeup and value system of ownership is the primary reason why African coaches are not hired because they tend to hire folk that look like them. Yes. And I'm sure you're going to get to that part as well. I, I, and I so, will, I'm sorry. I, I like to just um, kind of support what you just said. Um, there are 32 teams. Right. And the first 15 of the 32 teams is worth $90 billion. <laughs> incredible. Yes. And that's their, their, they're the richest. And some of them are also on the richest um, in the world list. And I just like to support what you said again. The NFL pays no taxes because it is a 501. It's a 501c6 nonprofit. So there is no tax being paid. Um, so that's another alarming situation where it's supposed to be a federal organization that protects um, individuals against discrimination. And that can be a whole nother topic. But I just wanted right. to support the information that you um, provided. Go on, please. Yes, ma'am. Another point, you know, that I think, and, and I'm sh that has recently come up in my mind, and we're going to get to those answers. On February 9th, uh, the New York Times, this is you know, 2022, stated there were 70% of the players are Black. Interestingly, Statistica, another company that does these kinds of um, surveys, stated that the percentage was 58%. So I began to think about those differences in how the league is, is counting. This is important to understand. Um, I don't know if there is like, you know, an application or a check off. When I see the New York Times report 70% of the players are black and then another company support that there's only 58%, that's an issue for me because I don't know how they're counting us. Now, our history is replete with how um, white America count black bodies. And so I don't know if, uh, if Jamaican players, I mean, straight up Jamaican players or Haitian players uh, or any other group, are they checking off as being African-American? Because I can't understand why that disparity exists. And um, we, we need to understand that, okay, from a perspective of how they treat black bodies, because this is really what it's about, um, um, how they treat and how they um, will suppress and how they will do different things not to acknowledge who we are, because with a higher percentage, it only stands to reason that the coaching would be reflective of that. 
And so they're not even in, in any compliance in reference to just that simple fact, you know, letting the league, who is the face of the league, be also counted in leadership. They don't do that. That's a good point. I have some more to elaborate on, but that will probably be later down in the interview. Okay. Um, okay. But I would really like for you to give us some um, illustration or commentary on the nine findings of the USA Today um, study on NFL racism. And okay. as I stated, I the first one on that list, and I and I <clears throat> agree with you totally. It is about ownership. That is that is the key reason for the embedded and deep um, seeking racism over hmm, from 1920 when NFL was originally uh, founded. So uh, moving forward in 2022, okay. we are still having those similar problems, if not worse. So the first one on the list, again, is never called plays. And so I want to set this up to say that these are the things um, the NFL teams slash owners use to keep black head coaches from qualifying for the jobs. And these nine indicators is embedded in all 32, if not, um, you know, all 32 teams, including society, no matter where mm -hmm. we are, these are the things mm -hmm. that we experience when, when um, bringing our skills to bear and our skills are denied and diminished through by an arbitrary list that a powerful institution uh, develops. So, mm -hmm. again, never called plays. What do you think about that? When you talk about never called plays, you got to look directly at the position. Mm -hmm. um, you're talking about coordinators, you know, offensive coordinator, um, defensive coordinators. The offensive coordinator um, in many on many of the teams, probably 90% call the plays, the, uh, the, the, the plays that they have discovered in a game plan, uh, that they have researched in terms of all of the technology, because the NFL have all of the technology in reference to statistics, in reference to uh, what they call tendency breakers. A tendency breaker is like a... a um, a play call that um, goes against what has been discovered, looks the same, called the same, but it's a tendency breaker, it goes against the norm. And so when you talk about play calling, you're talking offensively, you're talking about someone who has a total grasp of the offensive system or a defensive coordinator who has a total grasp of the, uh, the defensive schemes designed to uh, stop a team from scoring. And so those persons, when you say never call plays, um, that is a, a, a fallacy, you know, um, because they're calling the defense, they're calling the offense. And we have two particular brothers who have been overlooked for the last several years. And that's the uh, 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 Eric Bieniemy, Kansas City, who has had great success with Patrick Mahomes. And, um, we have uh, the Tampa Bay uh, coordinator um, who has had tremendous, uh, 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 how do you say, success with uh, Tom Brady. And this, this brother 
is spectacular, but they have been overlooked for the last several years. And Sterling, uh, Mr. Sharp speaks about that. If you've seen his, his excerpt, yes. and he speaks about several of the new white coaches who do not have play calling experience. Yes. So that is nonsense. He also notes, you know, um, again, you know, the, the, the coordinators who had play calling experience and never got the shot. And so that is, um, that is a very, very weak uh, allegation yes. in terms of um, our ability to, to call games offensively and defensively. Uh, okay, so let's let's get through this list. Number two okay. on the list is too many friends listed on coaching staff. Meaning, yeah, well, okay. You, the NFL is one of the biggest good old boy systems in effect in the world. Okay. Yeah. Um, the room is full of people that know each other. There's this concept they call the coaching tree. Like, for instance, um, you may have a coach that was a head coach and under him, uh, several other coaches that were coordinators, that were uh, position coaches that came from his his coaching tree. And so these guys are friends. So to say that uh, a reason for an African-American coach not getting the job because of the potential list of people in there who may be his friends is another issue that has no merit because the room is filled with men that are friends. So, okay. So that's another arbitrary um, explanation in terms of not selecting a black head coach. So it's nonsense. Right. Okay. So let's, let's, let's go to no game clock experience. We have, we have seen in recent games, if you've been paying attention, uh, that clock management among some of the new coaches is an issue. Games have been lost because some of the new white coaches did not demonstrate a degree of um, expertise in clock management. And so um, no previous game clock experience. If you're just a position coach and have not had the opportunity to, uh, to be a coordinator, then no previous game clock experience might not be in your resume, but it does not mean that you did not understand the situations that call for uh, an understanding of how to manage the clock at the end of the game, uh, whether you're in a two-minute offense or a four-minute offense, offensively or defensively, what you're going to do. I think that, again, is another nonsensical kind of criteria or standard to meet. Mm. Oh, okay. So the next one is mm, unsure of the ability to motivate veteran players. Now, you know, as a person who has played football, who has coached a little football, who has studied it, this is my opinion. And I don't want this to be the opinion that you have or an opinion from the station. This is my opinion. And uh, in my in my opinion, veteran African-American players would not find it difficult to be motivated by an African-American coach. Okay. 
I, that's, that's, that's nonsense. So what is this coded language really about? I think it's about older veteran white players who may have the same value system as racist ownership. That's who they may have a problem motivating. Okay. Um, so in your recent um, experience, have you seen that play out anywhere? Because one of the things that we do know is that the ownership tend to favor people who look like them. And mm -hmm. you hear a lot of conversation throughout the ranks, but we know they have a kind of like, they keep things silent or keep it internal until, you know, until you hear something from uh, Antonio Brown or you hear from another coach saying they paid us to lose games. You know, you start to hear the code of silence um, to break. In your recent information that you have taken in, have you seen something to this degree play out where veteran players um, have expressed their concerns? Black veteran players have expressed their concerns. They didn't want to be motivated by a head black coach. Have you ever heard of that? I have never heard of that, but I've, I have heard the idea of locker room, whether a player is good for the locker room. He may be a outstanding defensive back or receiver or whatever. But um, for instance, you mentioned Antonio Brown, you know, it got to a point where the folks were saying whether or not he was good for the locker room. But we do have uh, cases in point where um, several years ago, I can remember these two players within the same locker room having, you know, great issue. Right now, we, you know, we, we can see that um, the NFL is a consist of people who have their own political understanding and background, you know, about current issues. See, at one point, the NFL and players and sports, they were encapsulated inside of the team and no one dared to speak anything that might draw unnecessary attention. It's only now that we see athletes speaking out because athletes are people too. They're within the society. We've seen the, 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 the acting out with the Colin Kaepernick, Kaepernick situation. That is a clear example of um, disagreements within the locker room. There were some people, some players that kneeled with, with Kaepernick, Kaepernick, I'm sorry, and there are others that didn't, that didn't buy into it. Some were black as well. And so those kinds of things, to be able to witness those kinds of things gives a, a bird's eye view and a clear look at the fact that locker rooms are, are political too. So um, we're going to continue down the list. Um, today we're talking about the um, USA Today uh, study on the NFL uh, and how prevalent racism exists, especially when it's time to uh, hire a black head coach. And what we were actually doing is going down the nine indicators or the nine reasons they would use um, in order to not hire a head black coach. And so we're going to pick up on that list. And the next um, item on the list is 
didn't interview well? We'd like to believe and think that anyone that uh, gets the interview, that you as the person who is doing the interview have some kind of preconceived uh, understanding and knowledge of the person who is being interviewed and what their skill sets are. And so um, I'm reminded of something my grandmother said years ago, and that was when you got your head in the lion's mouth, you got to wiggle easy to get it out. So um, didn't interview well, could that be confused with being conservative and knowing that you are in the den of iniquity and, and, uh, and unfairness and marginalization and all the things that we've mentioned, um, would that produce a, a demeanor that could be misconstrued uh, by ownership as not interviewing well? Because they know um, the history of them not hiring African-Americans better than anybody. And if I just make this one point, um, the Rooney Rule um, several years ago um, stated something to the effect that, you know, an African-American or black coach when there was an opening needed to be uh, uh, interviewed, need to have at least one. And so going into this interview, knowing that you might just be having a perfunctory uh, interview something just part of the process, but something not really real that might um, eventuate into a real possibility of getting the job may also create a certain kind of demeanor. That is purely subjective in terms of ownership and reference to that process. I have to agree with that area because I think um, being a person that have interviewed before, everything you just said comes into play. Um, when the power dynamics is on the other side of the table. Mm. And so um, they get to make the rules, right? Um, yes. They get to draw the measuring stick, and they get to be exclusive in terms of who they want a part of their organization. And so I think without us knowing, I think we've all been victims of that, um, that has a certain kind of complexion. So, mm -hmm. so next on the list would be like the necessary experience to lead. Well, you know, again, again, my opinion, just from observing, um, each position has a coach and probably let's look at the defensive backfield coach position coach. He probably has about nine guys, nine to 10 guys that are uh, defensive backs and, and he's successful in coaching those players, leading those players, having those players buy into what his philosophy is in terms of um, techniques, skills, and knowledge sets to play the position. So he has to impart that to those guys in his position. Now, if I'm not given the opportunity um, to do that, if I'm not given the opportunity to, uh, to hold the positions that will allow me uh, a, a larger chunk of the, of the experience of coaching the entire team, because a head coach, some head coaches are position coaches, but a head coach responsibility 
is to coach the coaches. Yes. To make yes. sure that they are doing what they need to do. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a head coach may intervene. So how can I develop the experience? But here's the interesting caveat. Many of these skill sets are transferable skills that can add to the leadership depth of any coach. And so, again, I don't buy that either. Lacking the necessary experience to lead. He's leading a section of the team right now. And so a defensive coordinator, he understands what the defensive line does. He understands what the linebacking crew does. He understands what the secondary does, which is the defensive backs. And he's leading all of those guys. He is the guy on the defense. So I don't buy that. Yeah. So um, the next one to me is so overt. (laughs) And again, I think a lot of us have experienced this and it didn't look the part. That is to me, that's outrageous. It's outrageous. It's outrageous, Dr. Baptiste. I can remember getting out of college. I, I graduated from, from Colgate, you know, a lot, a lot of years ago, and going on an interview at at a um, at like an employment agency. And at that time, I had a mustache and a goatee. And the guy literally told me, "You're gonna have to lose that goatee." You're going to have to cut that off. And I can remember Joe Namath with the Fu Manchu. The NFL didn't even want that with him, and he was a white boy. Okay? And so uh, this piece, don't look the part, is as xenophobic as you can get in terms of reaction to race, you know, color. Okay, and which is a part of the racialization process. Didn't look the part. And Sharps mentioned something about that. What they're really saying that you were black. Yes. That's the part. Your complexion, that, your your complexion yes. is offensive. That's right. right. That's what they're actually saying. That's they take the sheet off of the coded language. Yes. Because that's a coded language that yes. didn't look the part. Meaning that what? I didn't have a three-piece suit on. With a tie? No, that's not what they're talking about at all. No. It's your look, what you look like. You don't look the part to represent me as a white owner for my football team. Because the head coach has to be an extension of the ownership, and you don't look the part. Exactly. That is as as overt as you can get, as as you've already said. Yes. Okay. So um, I'm glad we agree on that because that is something else. Um, that, that's, it, that is a showstopper, actually. That's pretty well, bad. Mm-hmm. That is one that they, um, that is most glaring. That is one that, as you've said, that is most overt. That would never have been said eight years ago. Never. They may have thought it. They may have felt it. But they now have a platform to speak openly about the fact that I don't like the way you look. Yes. And and, and I like to remind the audience, this is USA Today uh, study of the NFL. These are the nine indicators 
of 2022 findings of the racism that still exists in the NFL, the largest show in the universe is the NFL Mm -hmm. Super Bowl. And this is how they feel, the ownership and all throughout the rank feel about hiring a head coach. Now, and I also like to remind the audience, this permeates all the way through the ranks in terms of who gets on the team. So I'll go back to the nine indicators. And now please um, elaborate on seemed nervous throughout the interview process. Okay, and I'll get to that. I just want to make this comment. In a reactionary kind of move that they made, we had several early games in the preseason where they had an all-black referee uh, crew to do a game. Um, obviously, they've added you know women to the referee. Uh, uh, I'm just going to call it the referee house. You know, they've added women to it. But I'm looking also at the. I don't want to call them kicking out crumbs to African-Americans, but they made, uh, I think it was Jay-Z and somebody else like in charge of Super Bowl activities or something. And we have seen, I think this year, there's an African-American that's gonna be doing the halftime. So again, we are and have been entertainment, okay? (laughs) We We are entertainment for white folk, we've always been from the plantation games, um, you name it. We well, have been. I'm going to ask you relegated. To, I'm going to ask you to land that. Okay. So we can get through the list because we are okay. approaching time. So, seem okay. nervous throughout the interview process. Well, um, I think that goes. Uh, back to didn't interview well okay i think those two things are are connected they didn't interview well and seemed nervous throughout the interview process i've just put myself in that place with the head that i have on me now going into that interview knowing what i know don't confuse my nervousness or what you perceive as nervousness as being an agitated spirit in a place where I know that it's been unfair to me and my kind perennially. I'm not nervous. I'm not nervous at all, but I know what the outcomes have been in reference to the interview process. Nothing has materialized in terms of hiring. So I'm sitting there in front of you. What you see is a person that is knowledgeable about what you are doing and what you have been doing. And because now I'm choosing very carefully what I do and my posture, don't perceive that as being nervous. Perceive that as being that I know who I am dealing with across the table, as you've already mentioned. Yes, um, well said, and I will elaborate on that. Um, Those types of positions, uh, again, it's about power dynamics, right? It's about Mm -hmm. um, 
winners and losers and who has the card or the power to select who's going to win and who's going to lose. And that's what uh, this um, racist institution have set up. They select winners and losers. And you never, since you never make the rules, then you can never keep up with the game. So you walk into a setting where it is natural for you to feel that the cards are against you, no matter how comfortable you feel about a situation, because it is about a mindset and a power dynamic. And with that being said, we're going to move to the last one, number nine. Number nine is job is different than what it previously. Well, yeah. Um, I think in the article it says, you know, the, the classic moving the goalposts. Yes. As soon as I get, uh, as they say, as soon as I understand the whole process, as soon as I have internalized what is necessary to take this next step, you throw something else in the game. You move, as they say, you move the goalposts. You've changed some things. So I got it now. Um, I have to get reacclimated, you know, to to what it is that you need and what it is that you're looking for, and that is classic in terms of um, uh, the African American sojourn in this country. Is that the goalpost is always changing? There's always uh, something put in now that changes um, what it was prior uh, to me applying for this job or something that has come to the fore that I didn't know about. And now I'm confronted with that thing that I didn't know about. And you, you know, and now the criteria is different now than it was uh, uh, three weeks ago or a year ago, the criteria is different. So I find myself have to constantly um, uh, be pliable in terms of making changes after change after change just to be able to get a foot in the door. Yes, and it's and it goes along with also looking at that whole dynamics of you overqualify or you underqualify and you just never quite good enough. And that is a that is a tool that is agreed amongst them to um keep you out to um uh you keep you in your place. How dare you come before us? You know, so these nine indicators highlight that kind of incendiary um, uh, racism that uh, across all industries, people with a certain complexion are faced with. Um, this list is just can be used in any industry across mm -hmm. the board. So, um, it's a realistic list, and it also proves that perhaps we haven't even touched on um, the the um, wealth of what this creates and the lack of wealth of what this type of behavior creates. So we're um, approaching our time, and so what I will ask you to do, based on the information from USA Today, release the coaches project. Um, the NFL racism still exists. 
mm-hmm. I like for you to summarize your perspective um, as to what do we do going forward? What, how do we address this? What do we need to do to continue to address these type of injustices that impacts us based on our skin color? Yes. Um, you can't put love on the ballot box. You can't legislate love and care. And what we are faced with is the comprehensive dynamics of institutional racism and the NFL being a place that has unfortunately demonstrated that behavior. What can you do to change the mindset? There needs to be a paradigm shift in terms of what white ownership feels and thinks about us as a people. You can't put that on the ballot. You can't legislate their feelings and what they think because it's going to call for a complete overall, or overhaul, pardon me, of the thought process of ownership. And ownership in America is a demonstration of the cultural dynamics of America that has been in place forever as it pertains to us. Troy Vincent said that want to eliminate the bias. Really? want to promote trust. Really? How are you going to do that, Troy? How do we accomplish that? How do we change the mind of 32 owners who owns teams that are worth $5 billion and we only want to be treated fairly in terms of the hiring of head football coaches who are qualified, who have demonstrated their ability to do this job, but yet are confronted with racialism, marginalization, uh, exclusion, exclusion, all of those things. Mm -hmm. So that is where the battlefield is. Yes, yes. And so um, if that is the battlefield and we are determined to go forward to make things better and to make humanity better and to uh, be able to support and take care of our families with these great skills and gifts that we're provided. Um, how do we do that in, in, in a upside down society that only sees right. race? How, right. do, how, do we, know, how do we move forward on that? Okay, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that probably will never, ever happen. You got you got but less than a minute. We need to have at the college level and the pro level those conscious brothers. They need to sit down one game. They need to sit down and not play and see what happens. 
They need to sit down. They need to protest. They need to sit down. Patrick Mahomes needs to say, I'm not playing this week. Zach Prescott, I need, I'm not playing this week. I'm done. I'm not playing until there's some changes. We got to sit down. The, a good old-fashioned football boycott. But are they willing to do that? That is the only way I can see. You got to hit them in the pocket. You got to hit them with some, some losses because I'm not playing. It, you think if Patrick Mahomes sat down and said, I'm not playing on Sunday, that they're going to trade him? No. Dr. Crowley, um, you have yes. 10 seconds. What are your last words? Well, how how you want to go? Your 10 seconds. I appreciate the fact that you've allowed me to, to speak this morning. Um, we have a great friendship, and I just appreciate you thinking about me and bringing me on. Thank you. And I thank you. I think I learned so much, and I think the audience and the community have learned a lot. Um, until next time, thank you for being a guest at the Fire and Ice podcast. Thank you, Dr. Crowley, and have a great day. Thank you. you too, Dr. Baptiste. Thank right. you. Goodbye. I just want to give you some background um, on the NFL. As I stated, it was started in 1920. And also, I'd like to recognize and dedicate this uh, broadcast to uh, Fritz Poland and Bobby Marshall, the first black coaches of the NFL, 1921. And I want to tell you a little bit about them. Uh, in 1921, as coach of the Akron Pros, Pollard became the first black head coach in NFL history, along with Bobby Marshall. He was also one of the first two black players. He made history while facing extreme racism. <clears throat> A century later, he's still one of the standards of coaching and black excellence. And one of the other um, persons I would like to mention is Art Shell, was the second black coach in NFL history, following Pollard 68 years later, and first in the modern era, considered after the 1970 AFL-NFL merger. Shell is also in the Hall of Fame as the offensive lineman, Many black coaches consider, consider him a groundbreaker and true hero. So I'm going to switch and talk about today's NFL. We have 32 teams. The NFL is a 501c6 nonprofit, nonprofit, which is a category designated to exclude local chambers of Commerce and Small Business Association from paying taxes. The 501c6 category, however, has one extra type included in the line of exemptions, organization, Professional Football League. The top 15 football um, clubs are worth $90 billion. That's the top 15. And I'd like to go on and talk about when Mike Tomlin won the Super Bowl in 2008. He was the youngest head coach ever to win a championship. 
He never had a losing season in 15 years as head coach. In many ways, with Tomlin, we came full circle. Tomlin, like Pollard, was set, set an example for all coaches and is viewed with extreme admiration. I also want to give you some data that U.S. Today Sports found that 91% of NFL coaches who work with the running backs at any level are non-white compared to only 24% of coaches who work with quarterbacks. Tony Dungy is the first black head coach to win a Super Bowl. As head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he turned the Tampa two defensive philosophy into a dominant scheme and one of the most utilized defenses ever. As coach of the Colts, he became a champion. We have to ask ourselves, what would Fritz Pollard see when looking at today's NFL? He see progress of the 722 on-field coaches in the NFL this season, 314 or 43.5% identify as non-white. That is believed to be the largest figure in the league history. He also sees some of the same lack of opportunity he and other black coaches face over the decades. There are just six head coaches of color out of 32 in a large league with a 70% non-white player base, mostly Pollard would see the work and sacrifice he and other black coaches have made wasn't wasted. U.S. Today Sports also found non-white position coaches, especially on the offensive side of the ball, are concentrated in a handful of roles that rarely come with promotion opportunities. This is significant because the latter two positions more often serve as feeders to the coordinator level, which is, of course, all but a prerequisite to becoming a head coach. This is, unfortunately, part of our league history, Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy said. It's not solely that black coaches were kept from head coaching position. It's that, in some cases, we were prevented from taking the pathways towards advancement. Thank you. That is Fire and Ice today. Hope you enjoy the segment and look forward to seeing you next week. Have a safe week and goodbye.